Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I am Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bowne, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk about tariffs. Because of the fact that the United States leaders of the past didn't do a good job on trade, and again, I'm not blaming countries, I'm blaming our people that represented our past, uh, it's uh, going to change. It's going to change. I mean, it's not a question of, I hope it changes. It's going to change 100%. And tariffs are going to come way down because we people cannot continue to do that. We're like the piggy bank that everybody's robbing, and that ends. Earlier this week, I got an email from Olivier Blanchard. Olivier is a colleague of mine at the Peterson Institute, and he used to be the chief economist at the IMF. So at his suggestion, we're going to try to answer two big questions. First, are American tariffs really so much lower than everywhere else? The president really has something that he doesn't like about Canadian dairy tariffs, but what's the right way to think about that? And second, why haven't tariffs already been lowered to zero? Why do we have the tariffs that we do? People can't charge us 270% and we charge them nothing. That doesn't work anymore. Okay, so the first thing to say is that the way the president thinks about how protectionist other countries are is probably not the best way. He has this habit of tweeting about egregiously high tariffs like the ones on American dairy exports. And it is true that the Canadians apply some very high tariffs on dairy once quotas are filled up. They have a system of supply management. And so what they do is they erect these prohibitively high tariffs to manage the total supply. And apparently this leads to really high dairy prices in Canada and makes Canadian consumers actually quite unhappy. But if you're going to call out Canada's dairy protection, you, you should probably be prepared to face the same sort of allegation coming right back at you. And it turns out the United States also helps out its dairy industry, just in a different way, through subsidies. So Jared Greenville, who's currently the OECD, has compiled some numbers to look at how much support different countries provide. And overall, the Americans do give more support to their dairy industry than the Canadians, although their sector is also larger, so maybe as a share, it's smaller. More generally, if America's NAFTA trading partners wanted to, they could actually point to some American products that get protection too, like sugar. According to President Trump's own U.S. Department of Agriculture, quote, the U.S. sugar program uses price supports, domestic marketing allotments, and tariff rate quotas to influence the amount of sugar available in the U.S. market. Mexico currently has an agreement with America where it holds back its sugar exports for fear of being hit with American duties. Last time I checked, that is not free trade, and it does mean that sugar prices are higher than they might otherwise be. There are other examples. The one that President Trump frequently comes back to is this fact that the European Union charges 10% on imports of automobiles, whereas the United States only charges 2.5%. That's true, but the Americans charge 25% tariffs on imports of pickup trucks. And the higher consumer prices that result means that that's an actually much more profitable segment of the automotive market. We have these examples of sectors where it looks like tariffs are not reciprocal. They're not the same. But it's worth stepping back and thinking about how these tariffs ended up like this. So tariffs between, say, the EU and America have been negotiated down over decades and decades under this thing called first the the General Agreement on Tariffs and Trade, and now under the World Trade Organization. 
at some point in that long history, American negotiators decided that it was better to accept the 10% European tariff on American cars and instead fight for something else, like low tariffs for American pharmaceutical products or aircraft exports. And similarly, the Europeans decided not to fight to reduce the 25% American tariff on pickup trucks. They went after different tariffs, like the ones on cars, instead. And obviously, those are two actors, but those were big, big negotiations. There were multiple parties, each making their own set of demands and concessions. And this is a form of reciprocity. So it involves some give here and some take there. Sometimes you even end up trading off tariff cuts and goods against extra access for services exports. Or in America's case, other countries promising to protect America's intellectual property. And this approach is more flexible. So it's not product by product, but it does make getting a deal easier. But what all this means is that when different countries care about different sectors, you can end up with different tariffs being applied at the end of the negotiations. If the U.S. wanted to agree a free trade deal with the EU lowering tariffs, it could. As part of the negotiations between those two countries, called the TTIP, that was a pre-Trump thing, the EU did in fact offer to cut tariffs on 97% products flowing between the two countries. The U.S. could have done the same. They could have made concessions here and there. If Donald Trump wanted lower tariffs, then that would have been the standard way of getting them. But obviously, also, the U.S. did agree a free trade agreement with Canada and Mexico. So on Trump's terms, most of their trade does look pretty reciprocal. 99% of products have zero tariffs between the partners. With the exception of this tiny sliver of products like Canadian dairy or U.S. sugar, all of the rest of the tariffs are reciprocally set at zero. So if tariffs on individual products are high, that's generally because that's some sort of hangover from them being taken off the table in some earlier round of negotiations. Some particularly powerful lobby just couldn't be traded off against some other one. But also when you're looking at tariffs, you do need to look at averages and not just things product by product. So maybe Donald Trump should start tweeting, as many Twitter pundits did, about average tariff rates. Now that's all well and good. This does sound easy. You can just look at America's average tariffs, look at Canada's average tariffs, look at the EU's and just see who's lower. But I'm afraid, but also delighted to say, because otherwise what would be the point of trade geekery, I'm afraid to say that this is a bit more complicated than it first seems. There are a few different ways of measuring a country's overall tariff level, and each one has its pros and cons. Historically, the easiest way to calculate tariff averages has been to get the total tariff revenue for a country, and you can get this from the the customs, what's collected at the border, and you just divide it by the total value of imports, the total amount of trade. That's basically equivalent to the average tariff or the trade-weighted average tariff. And for some countries, you can get this data dating back even into the 1700s. So I'm going to take listeners through a worked example. Suppose you're a country. You import $100 billion worth of stuff, and you have two products that you're importing. You've got $10 billion worth of cars and $90 billion worth of cheese. More cheese than cars. And suppose those cars face a tariff of 50%, and the cheese faces no tariff at all. Okay, so on your $10 billion worth of cars, you've got a 50% tariff, and you get tariff revenue of $5 billion. Overall, you've got $100 billion of imports. That's the $10 billion of cars and the $90 billion of cheese. So overall, you've got an average trade-weighted tariff rate of 5%. 
$5 billion divided by $100 billion of trade. And so when you do that sort of calculation, as the World Trade Organization does, you find that the American trade weighted average is 2.4%. And that's a bit lower than the European average of 3% and the Canadians at 3.1%. But there is a problem when trying to use these numbers to think about how protectionist a country is, or when you're trying to compare tariffs. So just returning to the example I gave before, what if you're only importing $10 billion worth of cars because of this 50% tariff? So let's take an even more extreme case. So suppose you had a 4,000% tariff, which basically blocked all imports of those cars. Because there would be no trade in those cars at all, you'd give it a weight of zero. But it was because of those high tariffs that had stopped the trade from actually happening. So their effective weight is zero because the tariff actually was so high. As a side note, us economists tend to think that the cost or the distortionary effect of tariffs goes up disproportionately as they rise. So you might worry about undercounting the weight of these higher tariff rates in an average measure. Luckily, there is another measure. Countries have come up with a common system of defining products. There's 5,200 of these products that everybody recognizes out there. So instead, you could take the simple average across all of these products and find the tariff that way. Here the problem is that you might end up getting stuff wrong because you have a massive tariff on something no one would have traded anyway. Or you discount the fact that huge categories of traded products are crossing the border with no duty at all. So returning to the wonderful worked example, you have $10 billion worth of car imports with a tariff of 50% and $90 billion of cheese with a tariff of nothing. The simple average is just... 50 plus 0 divided by 2, so 25%. Under the weighted average, it was 5%. Here, basically, the fact that you have a 0% tariff on cheese isn't getting very much weight. So that could inflate the answer, the average tariff. There really is no one right answer to thinking about this. And so to its credit, the WTO publishes both of these statistics in this great book they put out each year called World Tariff Profiles. The WTO also published these on a bilateral basis, so describing the trade that actually goes on between two countries. And if you do that, then you find that because of Canada's agricultural tariffs, the tariff that American goods exports face is a teeny bit higher than going the other way. So average tariffs for American exporters do seem to be slightly higher than Canadian exporters going back into America. And... If you crunch the numbers, as we did, on a trade-weighted basis, you find that Americans faced a slightly lower tariff when exporting to the EU than when going the other way. So in that measure, American exporters face lower tariffs than European exporters. Okay, so that might sound like a big newsflash, but I would just like to caveat this by saying that the differences are really small. There are different ways of calculating this. There are slightly different numbers in the World Trade Organization and the World Bank. This is not a significant difference. And overall, these tariffs are very, very low. There's also the point that if you look at the simple average, which doesn't take into account how much trade is happening and doesn't suffer from these problems that trade can be affected by the tariffs, actually, the American tariff is lower than the European tariff on average. That's right. The U.S. tariff is only about 3.5%, and the European tariff facing U.S. exporters is about 5.2%. And then when we do the same exercise for China, you do find that China faces lower tariffs coming into the U.S. market. The trade-weighted average is about 3% than American exporters face getting into the Chinese market. The trade-weighted average there is about 
And that same relationship holds as well when you look at the simple averages. Sorry, listeners, that's a lot of numbers to put in one podcast. We'll tweet it all out. Facts are great. So when thinking about overall tariffs, the averages are certainly better than anecdotes. But unfortunately, even these average figures have some problems with them as well. Turns out they don't include all the tariffs. These tariff averages that you'll see doing the rounds on Twitter, the ones cited from the World Bank or the World Trade Organization, those include the official commitments that countries have notified to the WTO. And if you look at those, you'll conclude that the United States really doesn't put tariffs on steel, and it has pretty high tariffs on products like textiles and clothing and shoes. Fun fact, I was told, which is that those tariffs, along with luggage, accounted for 6% of America's imports in 2017 and 51% of its tariff revenue. And I also heard that tariffs on women's clothing tend to be higher than that on the men's stuff. Hmm. But less fun is that these averages, and so think about that 51% of the tariff revenue, they actually exclude some really important tariffs that are actually being used out there. So they exclude anti-dumping duties. Those are the tariffs that countries use to defend themselves against low-priced or under-cost imports that are coming in. They also exclude countervailing duties, which apply to subsidized imports. And they also exclude the tariffs that countries impose on surging imports, so under safeguards. So it turns out that the American government is one of the biggest users of those types of tariff policies. So if you were to count them in, American tariffs would not look quite so low. For example, right now, the United States puts these sort of special tariffs on about 9% of imports coming in from China and about 3% of imports coming in from everybody else. And I don't have the most recent numbers, but neither China nor the European Union put the same amount of special tariffs on their imports coming in from the United States. And so this may not reverse the relationship of who has more protection, but it does get closer than just looking at average tariffs alone. The average tariffs exclude these defensive duties. And the the other big category of tariffs that this all excludes is obviously the stuff that the Trump administration has been doing recently. So that includes the tariffs on steel and aluminium in the name of national security, or even the tariffs that, as we record this, could be about to hit China. The Trade Talks team did some back-of-the-envelope calculations. We tried to put these steel and aluminium tariffs in the context of other tariffs that America is applying. We weren't able to include the anti-dumping duties and the countervailing duties. Sorry, we're not quite there yet. But what we did try to do is work out how much, assuming that imports fell by a third, as the Trump administration seems to want, how much that would push up America's overall tariff rate. So on a trade-weighted basis, America's tariff rate is 2.4%. And roughly speaking, the steel and the aluminium tariffs could push that up to 2.7%. If the Trump administration followed through on its threat of, say, 25% tariffs on $350 billion of cars and car parts imports, that could almost double the average tariff rate and... I'm being a bit vague here because I don't have a model in my head for how much car and car parts imports might fall. Generally, it would just raise the tariff rate fairly substantially and cause a lot of disruption. And that's not even taking into account the China tariff stuff either, which could be $50 billion worth of imports, $150 billion worth of imports. Who knows where it ends? Before we leave you with a fuller picture of the complexities when it comes to citing these tariff figures, There's one final obvious point to make. 
And that is between rich countries, there's lots of other kinds of trade barriers that may be actually much more important than tariffs. There's quotas, these rules of origin things that we keep talking about, and lots of other regulatory hurdles too. In America, New Zealand pints. The EU tends to prefer liters. There are different labeling standards, different rules on how you have to treat data. When TTIP, this deal between the EU and the US, was being negotiated, one of the biggest disagreements was over how much to open up services trade. Maybe we'll see more tweets about those. Either way, we'll definitely explore them in future episodes of Trade Talks. And that is all for this week. I would recommend that all listeners read my piece in this week's issue of The Economist with the title, How Open is America? And I'd like to point our really geeky listeners to my 99-page paper with Meredith Crowley called The Empirical Landscape of Trade Policy, which goes into even more detail of all of these tariff statistics. I'm at Samaya Keynes on Twitter. And I'm at Chad Bown. And we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to Trade Talks branded fleeces, one just wasn't enough. Okay, so listeners, um, we are the new proud owners of Trade Talks branded fleeces, which I suspect will be arriving in a social media timeline near you. And so what, what Chad's done here is he's replaced the joke with a plug for merchandise that is literally impossible to buy. And you see why Trade Talks is, is rolling in the big bucks. Yes, but to remain on brand, I thought I would try to go and actually look up the tariff codes for mm-hmm. these fleeces. Okay, so I'm going to start with my fleece. And so what I did is I opened up the American, the U.S. Harmonized Tariff Schedule, and I looked up the category for men's suits or jackets. That's 6103. And and for jackets alone, it's 6103. But then the very big question is you start to try to figure out what the tariff rate is for one of these jackets. You have to decide what kind of fiber the jacket is made out of. So, you know, I'm going to cut all of that, right? Yeah, I know.